The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And take a little time and adjust as you need to. And again, it's really great to be with everybody. You probably noticed that I uh, spotlighted myself because we're recording right to the YouTube channel for live stream. Uh, but you can always choose the gallery view and the upper right if you prefer. So whatever works for you is, of course, okay. And let's just take a moment and at least with her eyes, say hi to everybody. <laughs> You can look through the screen and uh, see who's here tonight or write something into the chat or just wave, whatever you like. See our beautiful faces. Appreciate that we can gather in this way. It is truly a little miracle that, you know, we can create community even in this way. It's really, who would believe that we've all, in just a year's time, you know, we've learn to feel community in this sort of strange world we call Zoom and live stream and all these different online forms. So uh, Jessica, who always helps out on Wednesday night, has been posting in the chat this uh, link. You might click it. I uh, put the... Uh, version of the refuges there. Is it opening up for people? And uh, it's basically, it's very simple. You don't actually need to have it because I can talk us through it. But I thought we'd just do this chant, um, the refuge chant. Some of you know this. And somebody sent me an email recently um, just wondering, you know, how one becomes a Buddhist. And I thought, oh, It's good to just look at that and and look at our reaction even to that question. Or I don't want to become a Buddhist. You know, I'm done becoming this or that. And Or other people, oh, yeah, I want to become a Buddhist. But I thought I'd just chat about that and hopefully other people will have comments and reflections to add. Um, But to begin, I thought we would do the refuge chant. And uh, this is a particular version that a friend and Dharma teacher from the Bay Area, Kevin Griffin. We've had Kevin out to teach. He's done a lot of work around Buddhism and recovery, 12-step work Um, over the years. He's written a number of really good books on the topic. And he's also a musician. So he, uh, for many years, he would help do music with the kids programs at Spirit Rock. And he teaches there as well. And the melody is something like, I take refuge in the... And then you do the traditional Pali. Budang saranangachami. I take refuge in the... Dhammang saranangachami. And this is a nice blending of something with some melody. A lot of you know that the early Buddhist chants tend not to be very melodic. They're just sort of a drone almost. Um, And it's nice to create a form for us to remember what it is that we're up up to with our practice. And so, you know, for some of you, you might not 
recognize the words Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, Buddha, of course, we think of the person who lived 2,500 years ago, but it really means the awakened quality in our heart, this capacity of this mind, heart, to be open and unrestricted, not caught, not confused, not attached. Awareness without attachment, without grasping. And what is that awareness without grasping? What does it do? It is intimate with Dhamma. That's the other refuge. So there's the refuge in Buddha. We were learning to really trust this capacity of our heart to be open, open to the way it actually is, Dhamma. And when we do that, when Buddha opens and is intimate with Dhamma, then we have a sense of what Sangha can be in our life, in this life, not theoretically in somebody else's life, because our activity in those moments when we're intimate, Buddha is intimate with Dhamma, our activity is Sangha. It's really nimble and creative and kind and wise. It's skillful. And so we take refuge in that engagement in the world, that engagement in our relationships that's nimble and creative and kindly and, and wise. And it doesn't, we're not skillful because we're trying really hard to be skillful. I mean, we try to be hard to be skillful sometimes, but sometimes trying really hard to be skillful gets in the way. And when we reflect about those times in our lives when we have been really skillful, it's often when instead of trying hard to be skillful, we're really doing our best to be connected, like feeling into the moment. And just let our thoughts, our actions, just and our speech, just let that come out of that deep valuing of being connected. So let's do this together three times. If you don't, if you're not into it, you can just listen. And of course, you're going to be hearing mostly my voice and hopefully your own voice. And we'll keep each other muted except for the for my voice. Otherwise, it won't sound very good. <laughs> And we'll just do this together, and then we'll continue our discussion about what does it mean to be interested in this path of practice that we call Buddhist mindfulness practice or Buddhist awareness practice. I take refuge in the Buddhang Saranangachami. I take refuge in the Dhammang Saranangachami. I take refuge in the Sangang Saranangachami. I take refuge in the Buddhang Saranangachami. I take refuge in the Dhammang Saranangachami. I take refuge in the 
Sangang Saranang Gachami. I take refuge in the Buddhang Saranangachami. I take refuge in the Dhammang Saranangachami. I take refuge in the Sangang Saranangachami. I bet you can guess that we used to do that in the kids' program. <laughs> That's how we had. I don't know if you were watching, but we had these gestures that we did. This is back in the, oh, maybe like 2000, 2001. And some of you know Wendy Morris and Rob Reed and Linda Breitag and a few others of us led a children's program at Common Ground. And uh, all the parents and kids, we do that together. So for Buddha, we'd put our hands on their heart. And for Dharma, you know, the way it is, we sort of put our hands down toward the earth and feel the feet touching the earth, like, yeah, right here, right now, this, the way it is. And for Sangha, we'd actually hold hands because uh, we'd be standing in a circle when we do this. It was our closing thing we would do with the kids program, kids and parent program. It was very sweet. I hadn't done that in years, so that was fun. <laughs> Thanks for bearing with me. So. You know, if somebody, you know, some of you are, you know, really into this practice and have been doing it for years, others probably are relatively new, but wherever you are in your practice, if somebody came up, a good friend, and you sensed that the person was sincere, I just said, asked you, you know, what is it that you're up to? Are you a Buddhist? What does that mean to you, you know? Or if, if you're, you know, if you're not a Buddhist, what are you? And, you know, the first thing that, that brings up in our mind, and I think it's good for us to address because it's, it's just really important in culture to understand the place of identity because we're all using identities. It's just that a lot of the time we're unconscious of our identities, including, you know, sometimes, you know, people have the identity, oh, I don't, I'm not into identities. I'm just an ordinary human being. And I don't really believe in racial identity or gender identity or, you know, I think that just divides us. But that's it. that itself, that statement itself is just an identity. That's just another sort of way of placing ourselves. And the way that I understand what the, excuse me, what the Buddha was pointing to is uh, just to be skillful, to be pragmatic and skillful about the use of identity. And this includes our spiritual identity or religious identity. Like how can we use those terms like, yeah, I'm a Buddhist or yeah, I'm a meditator or yeah, I'm somebody who's into Buddhist awareness practice or however, whatever way you might language that, you know, how to use that, those terms and that identity, not something to cling to so that we take that stance and then we're, opposed to people who aren't that, but how to use it as a way of illuminating both to ourselves, like what, what is, what, what do I care about? What are my values? And also to connect with others, like to help each other understand 
who we are and what we value and what we're trying to do with this human life. So I think it's useful to just say that at the beginning of a talk and a, a group discussion about what, what does it mean to us to be a Buddhist or to be a Buddhist practitioner. Or, of course, you know, Buddhism is a more recent creation, really, like at the time of the Buddha, it was he was teaching the Dharma, right? Not Buddhism. He was teaching Dharma, meaning the way it is. When you pay attention, when you stabilize present moment awareness, your heart begins to see, clarify the way it is. And that's, you know, that's partly what that word Dharma or Dhamma means. It means the way it is. Not the way it is conceptually, but the deeper experience of the heart opening to the moment and what that reveals. So, you know, in in traditional Buddhist culture, um, and not just in in sort of um, Theravada countries like Thailand and Burma or Myanmar and Cambodia and Laos and Sri Lanka, but really in all the places Buddhism has gone, the, the way that somebody aligns with this practice, this lineage, this tradition, whether, whatever you want to call it, religion, spiritual practice, human common sense, right? Whatever you call this, the way that often people would do it is they would take refuge. And in a way, this, it can sound very much like, um, you know, the Buddha is my God and I bow down to the Buddha and uh, he's going to save me because I'm in allegiance with the Buddha but it's really more an allegiance with a way of practice. And any of you who've hung out at Common Ground long enough know that we say that word way too much, practice, 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 right? It's like like in every other sentence is the word practice. Because in a way, what draws most of us to these teachings is that we realize we've come to this basic realization that my heart needs to be trained. That if I just let my habit energies have the run of the show, I won't, my life won't be useful for myself or useful for the world. So I need to do something with this life, whether you call that practice or training or rewiring our heart or however you want to talk about, we have to, we, we, part of what we wake up to is there's something to do. Like I got to take care of my heart. It needs some tender care. It needs some healing and it needs some uh, work. <laughs> I said some uh, recent graduates of, uh, of the teacher training program that Shelly Graff was in. Um, Devin, I'm forgetting Devin's last name right now. Originally from Madison, she and her partner wrote a book that has the phrase hot mess, right? I'm a hot mess. I, this heart needs some training. I'm a hot mess, right? Just the way that we're afraid, the way that we're carrying the trauma of the past, of our ancestors in our bodies, in our hearts, in our culture. We're carrying the ignorance of our culture and our bodies and in our hearts, Right? We've been programmed by just so much human ignorance. So it's 
we're not blaming anybody for being a hot mess, but we are. And so when we wake up to that, we realize we need to train the heart. And then the question is, well, who, what, what kind of training do we need? And so when we take refuge, the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, those words, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, they're Buddhist code for the inkling that we have of the direction we want to go. It's like re-aiming our life. Let's just say one, you know, the cultural lineage would be to aim towards consumerism. Okay, I'm a hot mess, but if I get the cabin I want, or if I get the house I want, or the car I want, or the partner I want, or the family I want, or even the justice I want, like in terms of social change, then I'll be happy. And the thing is, those things do have an effect. When we, you know, when we get something we want, get something that we think will make the world better or make my life better, there is some effect on our life. There's no doubt about it. But it doesn't resolve the problem. And that's, that's a hard lesson for us to learn. So this, this initial refuge is somehow understanding that a refuge based on conditions, circumstance, is always tenuous and fragile and therefore unsatisfying. So when we take refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, we're literally saying, I'm not looking, I'm not against having nice stuff, but I'm trying to remember that I trust more being open, that's Buddha, intimate with my life. And I'll just trust that what comes out of that intimacy will make this life worth living. So we're not seeking like a particular plan. I'm going to become this kind of person with this in my life. What we're really seeking is a way of relating to life. And that's the beginning of, you know, like what it means to be a student, let's say it this way, to be a student of the Buddhist teachings. We work with this pointing out we get from the Buddha, which is basically it's limited. It's a limited life. It's a frustrating life to orient around circumstance and conditions as if it's going to save me. But giving up on circumstance and the conditions of my life is also a dead end. You know, what you might call that asceticism. But there is something that delivers the goods. And that is profoundly transforming how we relate, no matter the conditions that we have. You're a privileged person, you're an oppressed person, we can radically transform how we're relating to this moment, to any moment, moment by moment. We can be the Buddha being intimate with Dhamma, and then there's that activity of Sangha arising out of that intimacy. (coughs) Excuse me.
So let's just take a moment and just reflect in our own lives about this shift in allegiance. And, you know, I've been doing this practice for a long time, almost 40 years now. And uh, this shift in allegiance is still very real to me. Like, meaning a lot of the time during the day, my actions seem to say that I'm taking allegiance in a cold drink or good food or some funny entertainment or this or that, something conditioned, something circumstantial, as if it's going to make me happy. Now, I like to think that even when I indulge in things, seek things out, that there's some wisdom there that understands, yeah, it will be a temporary gratification, it will be nice, and then it will end, and nothing much will have shifted. But I'm not causing harm or too much harm in doing it, so I'm going to have that frothy drink or have that this or that in my life. So... I find this really poignant, like having these refuges. What is my life about? Is my life about letting go, relating to this moment in a way of non-attachment, and the happiness, the release, the freedom that arises? Or am I banking on becoming somebody or getting somewhere that I imagine will make me safe. So the safety coming from letting go or the safety coming from having. And that's sort of why when we have this sort of the three refuges or the statues of the Buddha or all of the paraphernalia, it's just to remind us of this choice we have about what the heart is in allegiance with. The basic values of the culture, consumerism and becoming, or the spiritual values that were, like, just to be honest, we haven't mastered, but we have some intuition. And part of what we're doing is using our life and our practice to get clearer about what is worthy of our trust, what is worthy of our faith and confidence. Yeah, so before I go on, let's just uh, see in from the group whether there's some reflections just on this question of allegiance. What is my heart in allegiance with? When my mind is, when my heart is grounded and settled, what am I willing to place my trust on, my trust in? What have I found isn't so trustworthy? And there's really two questions here, like what do my actions reveal about my refuge? And what do my thoughts and contemplation reveal about what is a refuge for me? So I'll just stop, see what people have to say before continuing. Yeah, and you can just raise your hand um, electronically or 
actually in front of the camera if your video is on and uh, see who would like to share a little or questions that have come so far. Eric writes, is allegiance different than an intention? Yeah, the way I'm using it, they're related, but allegiance is more that initial um, intuition, let's say, that this is of value. This is more trustworthy. And you know how it is, like if we're scrolling, looking for some entertainment on the internet, you know, we don't have a lot of deep intuition that I'm going to find something that's really going to transform, or, you know, really take care of me in my life. We do it anyway, but, but, but if we're at all reflective, we realize that whatever I'm going to find scrolling around through the internet is going to be of limited value. I mean, even the times we stumble upon a really interesting article or whatever it is, you know, really beautiful piece of music that it might be impactful, but the force of habit, the force of the way we live our lives, doesn't, you know, it doesn't really shift too much. And, uh, but the, the more we trust like the refuge of letting go or the refuge of non-attachment or the refuge, like another way to think of the, the Buddha's refuges that he suggests, taking refuge and relating to the present moment free of attachment, free of grasping. So intention will flow out of that, like the intention to be really close. Because to realize non-attachment only like to get operationalized, you have to be really intimate and sensitive. Like I could say, I'm not that attached with what's going on in Haiti. If you didn't read the news today, the president or prime minister of Haiti was killed. Um, But it's because I'm so distant. I don't really care. So that's not non-attachment. That's being disconnected, right? So to to realize non-attachment I have to be really intimate with the moment. So when I take, when I have this allegiance to being free with experience, instead of an allegiance to having things the way I want them, then that allegiance to be free with experience comes then with the intention to be intimate because it's the only place to realize that, that non-attachment so, Lucy, do you want to go next? And then we'll go to Bruce's comment. Sure, I can go next. I think this is uh, this is such a good question. Um, because until recently, I struggled with, you know, you're, you were talking about identity. And, um, and I was struggling with coming out as a follower of Buddhist teaching. So the words I use is, I practice the lessons of the teachings of the Buddha. So I don't call myself a Buddhist or anything, but uh, it's very interesting because also in the spring in Canada, we had a census and I had to pick a religion. And for the first time I picked Buddhist because um, they didn't have practicing the teachings of the Buddha in my options. So, and that's the first shift 
because I was born a Catholic. And I think what's been interesting is, uh, and I'm a new practitioner. Um, you know, I was introduced to meditation first seven years ago. I've really, it's so funny. You mentioned about scrolling through the internet lately. I've been in the last couple of days, I've been scrolling through the internet, looking at this Sati Panasutta. Mm-hmm. I don't think I have that. I don't, it's a, I don't have the holes, um, but how I use uh, the Buddhist teachings, the Dharma is if I have a worldly question and a worldly issue, it's obviously I will come to my Sangha, my group here with uh, common ground and supplement that with books, books. And I watch the common ground uh, YouTube channel on teachings or Dharma seed or something. I will, I will put in a search. Okay. What's, what's the thing I'm trying to figure out. Renunciation is this week's uh, theme. So it's, it's been woven in over time of just showing up for practice at these, at, at our, in the community. Um, It's, it's in the back of my head that when I see a worldly problem, I go back to the teachings to find something that will help me uh, address the challenge. And what I seek in these three things, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha is really ease, ease, ease and peace, ease. Nothing is easy, easy, but if I always have, if I could get myself into a sense of easing through um, hard times, happy times, um, It's a good, it's a good place to be in. So that's my yeah. share. Today. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Lucy. Yeah, and that ease that you just mentioned at the end of your sharing, the ease. It's it's not a, like you said. It's not about the conditions. So there is a particular taste of this freedom that the Buddhist teachings point to. Just like Lucy was saying, it is an ease or a release, or a non-entanglement with the conditions of the moment, whether they're really pleasant, ideal conditions, or really difficult, challenging conditions, there is a non-friction that the heart has with life. And it's we don't have to be able to articulate that, like I just did a moment ago, or Lucy did a few moments ago, But we need to understand that directly because that's part of understanding the different allegiance. There's we, because we get programmed just growing up in our world to have an allegiance to struggle, the struggle to survive, the struggle to get to the top of the heap, to be loved, to have power. None of that is bad. So I, Buddhism, and I'm certainly not saying those issues are somehow to be avoided. You can't avoid them as long as you're alive. So that would just be neurotic to think that, oh, I'm I'm going to be a human being, but I'm not going to deal with anything around power, right? That's like being neurotically naive to think, because in, in every relationship, whether it's you and your child or you and your partner or you and your community, it's always on some level going to be about power and we have to be able to show up for that. The difference is though, we don't expect me engaging issues of power, me engaging issues of survival, 
me engaging issues of community and belonging and having my social needs met, I don't expect it to make me happy. I'm doing it because to not do it is a cause for suffering. It's like I have this life. Part of this life is being in community. And we just have to own our responsibility that you could say, like in Buddhist terms, our karma of having been born a human being. There's some duties and responsibilities that come with that. Like we have to have an honest relationship with our genetic programming for one, like sexual beings. We're all sexual beings, each of us in our own ways. And we got to be true to that. We got to listen and try to express it in a way that doesn't cause more harm than needed. It's not so, I mean, we value non-harming, but we don't really avoid it completely at all. Yeah, let's take up Bruce's comment here. I'll read it for us all. I can really relate to needing reminders. Sometimes it feels like every few, every new morning, I have to remember and recreate what I came to learn the day before. Yes, definitely the need for clarity about where my allegiance is every morning. Exactly. And the taking refuge, you know, it has a real formality in Buddhism. But the key is exactly what I think Bruce is pointing to is how can we find a way that's real for each of us uh, every morning, every evening before we go to bed to take a little time to clarify what does my heart really trust? What am I going to do with this human life? If I can only do one thing with this human life, with the time I have left, where am I aiming? What is, what is of most value? What is my refuge? Yeah, and that's kind of what we're talking about right now. And it would be very appropriate for people to just share personally, like how you do that. And or if it feels weird to do that, why? Yeah, any other thoughts? <clears throat> yeah, Ima. Hi, everyone. Um, this. This question is something that I've been asking myself, but in a very subtle way. Um, I know like with my son and my husband, um, they know that I've been involved in um, attending these talks. Um, I share with them what I learned. Um, But lately it's been feeling like um, I don't share it with people I don't feel safe with. Uh, There's, and this, this question made me kind of bring that up um, because well, because I don't know, <laughs> I don't know why I'm feeling that way yet. I'm sure it'll become clearer to me, uh, but I wouldn't share it. I don't share it with other ex- family members or friends uh, that I'm practicing <clears throat> because I asked myself just uh, yesterday morning, am I a Buddhist? And I I know, I know what I'm living. You know, I sit in the morning, I I. And I remember one of the talks you said that, you know, it's even about how you get up off your chair, you know, off the cushion or like all of that is the mindfulness behind it all, you know, and I, I, during the, the intensive, I put an altar up, I have a Buddha, 
and I, you know, I bow to the Buddha. I, you know, I say, you know, I take refuge because I do take refuge. That's my truth. I do all day long, as many times as possible uh, to be mindful. And right now, the question you asked is how come I'm doing this, you know, <clears throat> because I'm learning to, to be intimate with my own life, with this life. I'm learning how to live, really. I'm first time. I'm really learning how to live by being present. And um, I think a couple of days ago, I caught myself like it wasn't until like one o'clock. I was like, oh, my word, I've been on autopilot all day. I couldn't tell you what I did, you know, an hour before that. And I would have never been aware that I wasn't participating. I was just on autopilot, like a robot, going through the motions of things. And now um, I try to live, you know, like moment by moment, as many times as possible. And and I'm I'm having to, I'm working on coming to answering that question for myself. I'm living it the best of my ability. I'm practicing every single day. Um, as far as like, I get up in the morning, I sit, um, I do the chants, I do the readings, I attend the talks and, um, practicing off the cushion to me is I find really like enjoyable, you know? Um, so I, I want to, I want to get to that point where I don't know, it just, it feels like I can't find a space for it, even though I'm living it. the word it's like, am I a Buddhist? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I'm a Buddhist. I guess I don't know what the what the requirements are. And I think initially too, I was going to ask like, is there a baptism or a, some type <laughs> of a initiation or to yeah. know, you know, to come to that, that right, you know, to enter like a rite of passage or something, you know? And so, um, yeah, I think this is an excellent question for us to explore, for me to explore for myself. Yeah. Thanks for that. That was really helpful to hear. And, you know, part of what adds confusion to the what you were just mentioning about, like, how do we hold that? And is there an entrance requirement and all those sort of things is that, you know, when and some of you have traveled to some Buddhist cultures. And of course, because Buddhism over the years, the teachings, it just gets infused in culture, in the language and the ritual. And you can't really separate like Thailand and Burma and places like that, you can't really separate the culture from the practices of Buddhism. But, mm-hmm. but real Dharma isn't, aren't those sort of cultural artifacts. Mm-hmm. And, but to them, that's Buddhism, like, you know, Theravada Buddhism or Mahayana Buddhism or Zen Buddhism or Tibetan Buddhism so here in the West, and especially with the uh, early Buddhist traditions of insight meditation, you know, we've, for better or worse, we've left behind a lot of the Asian cultural elements. Mm-hmm. And I'm not claiming in any way that it was done in a perfect way. Probably not, right? But it, it does make it, one of the advantages, it does make it a little bit easier for us to not be tied to even using a word like Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Like we can have a profoundly deep, useful practice and never ever to ourselves or to our friends use the word Buddhism. There's no requirement to use that word Buddhism. There's no need to have a Buddhist statue at home or to have any devotional feeling to that 
image of that person. Because, you know, the Buddha said this directly, the point isn't me. Like there were times, even at the time of the Buddha, people would be, you know, he was a charismatic teacher. People would become entranced with him. And he would say to him, you know, it's not me. It's the the practice. Do the practice. That's the thing that's going to be valuable. But having said that, we do need our placeholders, our symbols. Because mm-hmm. we get distracted, we get forgetful. There's so much going on in our lives. So it's totally okay for us, each of us in our own way, to use the symbols as long as we remember what the symbol that they're symbols and not something to get attached to. You know how that is, how we... Yeah, just the paraphernalia can be more important than the practice. And that's really not what the Buddha points to. And then the other piece that it's just really good for us to remember that a lot of other, when Buddhism is sort of included with the other religions, it's really uh, different in the way that nobody, I mean, it's at least, and see, this is also different between early Buddhism and later schools of Buddhism. But as I understand early Buddhism, we're not being asked to believe in anything supernatural. Mm-mm. You can, but you don't need to believe in something supernatural, including rebirth, which is talked a lot about in Buddhism. But you don't need to believe in anything to become a deep, deep practitioner of the teachings of the Buddha. And that's really important to remember. It's very, very pragmatic in that way. So, you know, in some ways it can be included as one of the many religions. And in other ways, it really shouldn't be included because it's not really the same kind of thing. You know, that sort of this leap of faith that I believe in this expression of God or... But of course, those even within any of those other religious systems, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, or any of the others, you know, there's such a diversity of how people are using. Some people really are tied to the sort of dogma and other people are really using it in pragmatic ways too. But as I understand early Buddhism, it's really designed to be pragmatic. I mean, the whole thrust of what the Buddha was pointing to is, not being fixed, not having fixed views, which is sort of the opposite of so much religious teaching, you know, to believe in something. Yeah, other thoughts about this? Yeah, Freda. Well, very, very early on, I ended up at a 10-day retreat with Upandita. Nope, you just muted yourself, Freda. Oops. I don't know how, where was I? Uh, you just said about you did that retreat with Saida Upandita. Right. And it was, it was with the Burmese community and some Westerners. But it was a very amazing experience because I, I can visualize this one woman. Her name was Mitzi. At least that was her Canadian name. And I was watching her do her slow walking and I thought, oh, this isn't some hippie thing. This is like a real thing. It's part of this culture. And it um, it made for, I don't know, just a little more reverence and faith 
early on that I might not have had otherwise. Um, what do I have allegiance to? I, I guess that I'm trying to live my life to be with more goodness, I think. To, to find that in me and to, yeah, to be that way more organically. Yeah, the Buddha really starts there, you know, in terms of like the essence of the Buddhist teachings. You know, it was, you want to be happy? Then the way to happiness is dana, sila, bhavana. Those are three Pali words. Dana means generosity, like really seeing your life as a circle of giving and receiving, really embracing that part of life. And sila is valuing non-harming and moral sensitivity around non-harming. And bhavana means to cultivate the mind or develop the heart. So we're developing a heart that's stable and clear and can see things as they are. So that was the simple answer the Buddha would give. If somebody, a sincere person would come to him and say, how do I become happy? And they didn't have a clue. He would say, Dana Sila Bhavana. Cultivate generosity, cultivate this deep valuing of non-harming, and cultivate your heart, develop your heart so it's stable and clear and really sensitive. Because you can't not become wise when the heart is sensitive. Because when our heart is really sensitive, when we're feeling everything and sensing everything and because we're present, because the awareness is stable, present moment awareness is stable, then if I act like a jerk, it's re- I'm going to really feel it, you know? So it's immediately, the, the feedback is immediate. Or if, I'm, if I tend to act skillfully in a moment, I'll feel how graceful, how easeful that interaction was. So it's self-reinforcing, awakening, becoming a better human being just happens naturally when we're really sensitive. Other reflections about refuge that people have? Or questions too, of course. Yeah, Nick. Um, I don't know if this is a comment or a question, but um, I I found that um, I, I think as you get older, as I get older anyway, this question of... Uh, rebirth and the afterlife and so forth seem to take on more prominence and i can't speak for everyone but i am assuming a lot of people grew up in a christian hegemonic environment for good or bad and so that way of um, thinking spiritually some of it is more dogmatic than others but um it's kind of all geared towards the big day, you know, the <laughs> end of life. And in our case, I, I have no qualms with, with living for the moment and, and nurturing these qualities as you talk about them. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't be sitting here all these years working on that. But at some point, it's going to end. And... 
I think it's from that upbringing or that environment that I've lived in that I am brought back to that question. And um, in one sense, it, it I got to be careful that it doesn't diminish what I'm doing now. But in another sense, it is an important question for me, and I, I think it, it, the importance comes from the back from that background. I just, you know, that Christian hegemony that I've always been surrounded by. Um. So you know, I I am a little surprised sometimes that rebirth is not talked about as much as I would expect it to be. Um, but. For now, all I've got is this moment by moment by moment by moment and, and working on these qualities that everyone wants to work on here. Um, but I do find myself drifting off into those questions. And it's um, it's good that I acknowledge them. It's good that I'm aware of them. They crop up every day pretty much now. And, and as I said, maybe it's as you get older, it becomes more real. But um, I don't know. That's that's one of the things that I kind of struggle with still. And I think it's really good to be honest about our interest in that question. And it's actually, Nick, I think it's in that same dichotomy that I mentioned earlier about wanting to be safe, wanting to be saved, wanting to become somebody that I want to become as a sort of a category that we tend to be in allegiance with. Like if I figure out, if I, if I have some real faith or confidence that things just don't end with death, I just don't become annihilated at the time of death, then I'll be, I'll feel safer. Right. So it's totally understandable. And to some degree, we have to deal with this category of experience that's about survival, that's about feeling safe, that's about yeah, just taking care of those, those needs of our animal self, to call it that for lack of a better way of talking about it. But we never get total release or safety in that so the other allegiance is to um, practice relating to these unanswered questions, like what happens at death, to practice relating to these questions in a way that has a lot of space and freedom. Does that make sense? Oops. Can you hear me, everyone? Oh, good. Yeah. I, my internet was unstable for a moment. Yeah. To, so instead of trying to resolve the question, and you know, you're right, Nick, that Buddhism does talk about end of life issues and how to hold that. I mean, it's partly because it was talked about in the culture where Buddhism arose. And so that got woven into the Dharma. But I think the deeper teachings aren't so much about how they resolve that question about what happens at the time of death, but how we're relating to that question right now. Cause it's just part of relating to life, that curiosity about what happens at death. 
And can I relate to that question with a heart that lets go, a heart that doesn't cling? You know, can I be with that ambiguity? What, What would it be like to make peace with not knowing? You know, so there may be rebirth. I'm okay with that. Maybe there's not rebirth. Can I be okay with that? Can I make peace with any conceivable possibility? and maybe even the inconceivable possibilities. Can I be free being a living being, not knowing what happens when the body dies? What would that look like to be free as a living being, not knowing what happens? So instead of being cultivating any dependence on some scenario of what happens, training or discovering how to be free right now with this because because the fear of death the reality that we don't know what happens at the time of the death at death that's a real reality right now that's that's the reality we're living right now we're a living being that doesn't even understand what that is and what it isn't you know that's our predicament so we want to be free with that and if we're free now with it then we'll manage that time of death with a lot of grace. I think that's really the approach I've taken around that those issues. Yeah, Jessica, did you have a comment that you put in? No, I was, that was just a Donna statement, just oh, to okay. let everybody know that they can, they can be kind and donate to to their own good good uh, fortune <laughs> <laughs> thanks thanks jessica yeah we have time for one or two more comments if there's people who haven't shared yet that want to just put their voice into the community what your own reflection around this is including this question you know because so much of what we think of in dharma or buddhism is like this bhavana that piece of cultivating a steady clear mindful presence and then they what do we do with that you know and the the simple answer is we we realize the causes for stress and we realize the causes for release we get wise about how we get entangled and we get wiser about how that release can get set in motion and we model that that's our gift back to the world doesn't mean that other things we do in the world aren't useful, but just modeling, not being afraid, not being entangled. So being a parent of teenagers without being caught up and being perfect at being a parent of teenagers or whatever we might be. Yeah. Who'd like the last uh, thought or reflection for the evening? could actually drop something in here that well, there was something you said the other day that that I, I think of, it impacted me a lot and also kind of goes into this conversation as sort of like the fact that what we talk about is practice and and how 
one thing that you said was that you um the, the, the more you the more you practice the more you realize how much you don't practice you know sort of how much is you know how much of your mind is really taken away and distracted during the day and i've really been noticing lately like really being you know it really helps me to have that in my mind because it allows me to be able to to, to know when i'm being mindful in my regular life or my normal life more often it was just sort of like a, a nice sort of drop to um keep me sort of more in, in tune during the day yeah yeah thanks Jessica. And Sherry, did you say, seem to have something to say? Yes, thank you. Um, I was just going to say that uh, uh, I began practicing because I, I noticed that I was becoming the kind of person that I really was railing against and I didn't like. <laughs> and so I needed a way to pull myself back from the edge. Uh, You know, I was hating all of those people out there. They were being stupid and inconsiderate. And I realized that I was they, they, those, they people. And so um, I don't, I had the same question kind of as Irma and a lot of the other people is like, is there an official way to become a Buddhist? I think that I'm actually practicing. Um, I don't know how skillfully, but I think that I'm I'm trying to do that. And I guess I asked that question because I really, um, uh, someone said in one of the talks may have been here that you have to take the one seat, right? You can't just keep flitting, flitting about, you know, you either, kind of commit and 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 kind of dwell deeply into that practice. So I've I know I've been using it. I've um I know I've been using it because the people that I'm around I go, oh my God, you know, who's the kinder, gentler you, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good feedback. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I should be offended <laughs> or or happy. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> probably a little bit of mo- I'll sit in the middle of that tension, right? Yeah. But uh, I, um, I'm going to end it there. But I'm I'm happy to be here. I'm always happy to be here, and I'm always thankful to see everyone that shows up. Thank you very much for yeah, being thank here, you, Sherry. And you know, just a, a very short answer to that appropriate question like is there an official way to do this you know becoming becoming a student of the buddhist teachings as i think lucy said yeah i mean traditionally the way you would do that is either on your own or a little better in community or maybe even a little better with a teacher that you really love and respect and if that teacher is a nun or a, a buddhist nun or a buddhist monk maybe even better just in terms of the traditional way, then you would go to that, you know, either on your own or with a community like we had tonight or with a teacher, and you would do the refuges together. And usually the refuges and the precepts, and the precepts are all about not harming. You know, I undertake the training to refrain from killing and harming living beings, undertake the training to refrain from taking what hasn't been given, undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct, Undertake the training to refrain from false speech, 
are telling lies and undertaking the training to refrain from intoxicating the mind that makes me careless, more likely to make mistakes that cause harm. So doing taking refuge and doing the undertaking the uh, five precepts for lay people, that's the traditional way. And it's something you don't just do once, but at the beginning it might be, yeah, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it as a marker for myself that I am a student of these teachings. And I see the Buddha as one of my teachers and then all the long lineage of wise folks after the time of the Buddha, I'm aligning with these teachings and these practices. And this is how I'm doing that because that's the traditional way, including using the Pali, if you like, you know, especially more people who are, have a more of a traditional bent to their personality, learn the Pali like we did. I mean, we did a a slightly different version tonight, but, uh, and we do do it on Sunday morning once a quarter as a community. So around the solstices and equinoxes, the Sunday morning that's usually closest to the solstice or equinoxes, we do the refuges and precepts together as a way of, you know, for new people, but also people who've been around forever, just re-imagining, uh, oh yeah, I see myself as a student of these teachings. So nice to be with everybody tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.